0: You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 38, for March 29th, 2009. Warning, this episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Metamore City podcast. This is Chris Lester, your host and head author. And we are not going to waste any time on this episode today, folks. We are getting straight into the story. No story so far this week because we're almost at the end of the book. So if you're just joining us now, stop. Don't listen to this episode. You will spoil everything for yourself go back and start with the beginning of Making the Cut at the least. But I don't want to hold back this story any longer than we have to, so here we are, chapter 28 of Making the Cut. Brian cast a wary eye around him as he and Fiona rode the escalator down to the subway station beneath Hutchins Tower. It was well after rush hour, and Monday night wasn't a party night for most people, so the station was lightly populated. They walked to a spot near the center of the plaza, stopping between a trash can and a set of benches. He scanned the faces of the passengers exiting through the turnstiles, but he didn't see any sign of Miriam. He glanced at Fiona. Anything? Her nostrils flared, and her brow furrowed in a moment of intense concentration. After half a second, though, she smoothed her features and shook her head, her expression bland. Nothing. Brian frowned, but before he could say anything, he sensed the touch of a familiar mind.
1: Thank you for coming.
0: Brian almost jumped out of his skin. He spun around and saw Miriam approaching, already less than three meters away. She wore a long, hooded cloak of nondescript gray a common enough sight in Metamore, particularly in cold weather. Brian hadn't hurt her mind at all until she touched him, and he was sure they must have walked right past her.
2: Damn, that is a really
0: good mind shield. He hadn't meant to transmit that thought, but Miriam gave him a small smile nonetheless.
1: You don't get to be my age without learning a few things.
0: Her psychic voice was tinged with dry amusement. The emotion was short-lived, though, and her smile faded almost as soon as it had come. Did you bring
1: weapons?
2: A few. But we don't exactly keep an arsenal at home. I have my gun and a couple of combat knives, but honestly, I don't think they're going to do much good against Victor. I hope you've got more of a plan than you told us over the phone. I do.
1: I'll explain once we get there. I don't want to risk anyone overhearing us. The safe house is side-shielded to keep the girl hidden so we can speak freely once we get there.
0: Brian nodded. Where are we headed? He asked, switching to verbal speech as he raised his psi shields. If Miriam was concerned about telepathic eavesdroppers, talking was safer than transmitting. Miriam gestured toward the east.
1: Connolly Tower,
0: she said, as she too reined in her thoughts.
1: There's a factory at street level we own through a Shell corporation. We'll take the commuter tunnel that connects the two towers.
0: Brian took a slow breath and let it out. (sighs) All right, let's do it then. He headed toward the sign for the commuter tunnels, then stopped when he realized that Miriam and Fiona hadn't joined him. He looked back and saw the two women gazing at each other, their expressions grave. For a long moment, neither of them said anything, neither in speech nor through telepathy, but Brian could sense the spark of a connection between them. He walked back toward them, but he still had to strain to hear it when Miriam finally spoke.
1: This is the hardest thing I have ever asked you to do. Can I trust that you will see it through to the end, no matter what?
0: Stiffly, Fiona nodded once. I will. Her voice was rough with suppressed emotion.
1: I swear it.
0: Brian was astonished to hear the pain in her voice. Not astonished that there was pain, but that her ability to disguise it was slipping.
2: Digging up those old memories must have had more of an impact than she lets on. He put a comforting hand on
0: her shoulder, and the moment between the two women was broken. Fiona lowered her head and brushed at her eyes. Fiona was crying? We really do
2: need to get moving.
0: Wait for me! Brian turned and stared as Daniel Shirabi leapt down the last few steps of the escalator and came jogging toward them. It was clear that he was dressed for a fight. He wore close-fitting soft cotton pants, a black turtleneck, a leather jacket, and army boots, with nothing bulky or dangling that might trip him up or slow him down. His long hair was bound into a ponytail and tucked up under a plain knitted cap so no one could get a handle on it but it was the look of steely determination in his eyes that truly showed that Daniel was not kidding around. Daniel? Fiona said, her voice sharp. What are you doing here? Taking care of some unfinished business. Sasha told me you're going after Victor. I'm here to help. Of all of them, Miriam seemed to be the most taken aback.
1: Do you even have a weapon?
0: Daniel bowed his head in a gesture of respect, then spread his hands. I was one of Victor's best students, Elder Bakhtavar. My whole body is a weapon. He gestured toward the small of his back. I don't own a gun. Not that it would do any good against Victor anyway. But I did bring three knives, and my tomfa sticks. I've been well trained with all of them.
2: This is out of the question. Go home, Daniel. It is too dangerous. All right, that's
0: enough. Daniel stepped in close to her and looked down at her deceptively small frame, pointing a finger squarely between her breasts. You want to say I've got crappy powers? Fine. I'll be the first to agree with you. You want to say that I'm too weak to be a father? (laughs) I don't like it, but I'll go along with that, too. But I earned top marks in combat arts all through school, and I did it without cheating like you do. Fiona's lip curled at this, but she said nothing. Daniel lowered his head to look her in the eye. While you were out stealing secrets and taking down drug lords, I spent the last five years as Victor's sparring partner. I know how he moves, how he fights. I can't counter his teak, but I know how to keep him off balance so he can't use it. So don't you dare tell me to go home and hide like some idiot child. I can do this, and if you'll use that logical mind that everyone's always talking about, you'll realize you need me. Fiona grimaced and looked away. Brian opened his mouth, then closed it again. He was torn between the truth of Daniel's words and his desire to keep his friend out of the fight. For all his skill in the Somnok, Daniel had managed to avoid becoming a killer. Brian wanted to preserve that bit of innocence inside him, to spare him the inner turmoil that came with taking a life. Killing, even for the best of reasons, always took something from you, and you could never really understand what that something was until it was gone. Still, Daniel was his own man. Brian didn't have the right to make his choices for him, and like it or not, they would need the help. Fiona met Brian's eyes, apparently having come to the same conclusion. Very well. She stepped past him and Brian and headed for the entrance to the commuter tunnel. Daniel looked over at Brian, his surprise evident. Wow, that was laconic even for her. She's had a rough day. Brian turned to Miriam. Elder, after you. Miriam glanced at Daniel, then nodded and followed after Fiona. Daniel fell in alongside Brian as they took up the rear.
2: You know, a little support back there might have been nice, Bri. Brian shrugged. You didn't need my help. You had logic on your side. If I'd spoken up, Fiona would have taken it as an order from her commanding officer, and then she wouldn't have had to admit she was wrong. Daniel snorted. (laughs) Very well. That's one gracious
0: admission there. It's Fiona. Take what you can get. Brian glanced sideways at Daniel, then added, How does Danny feel about this? Daniel closed his eyes briefly. She's supportive. She knows why I have to do this, but she prefers not to get involved herself. I think having less testosterone cuts down on her aggression level. He winked at Brian. Most of the
2: time, anyway. Daniel, I really don't want to know...
3: Is everyone in position?
2: Sasha asked. This is Rogers. All set up here. Smith here. East entrance is covered. This is
4: Hudson.
1: In position. Got my help. Good to go. Cyril and Tiger here. Cocked, locked, and ready to rock. This is Matthews in SN1. Standing by. This is Perry. We're ready down here
0: in the ER. A wave of confirmations came back through the link. Sasha allowed herself to relax a little.
3: Okay, good. If any of you see anything suspicious, let me know right away. If this guy shows up, I want him tagged and on the floor before he can even touch a weapon. Don't worry, Lieutenant, we can handle it.
0: If he tries anything, he's gonna regret it. Sasha closed her eyes and wished, not for the first time, that she were dealing with M.I.D. operatives instead of hospital guards. Collective-run hospitals stocked as much firepower as they could get away with, A precautionary measure, in case the Vampire Syndicate ever decided to go after a convalescing telepath. Unfortunately, all of the Hive's best warriors went into MID service, so security teams like this one were composed of second stringers. Or worse.
3: Don't get cocky. We don't know who this guy is, so assume the worst and deal with him accordingly. I don't want anyone getting hurt because they got sloppy. I hear you. Copy that. Got it.
1: Acknowledged. Copy that,
0: Lieutenant. She received a second wave of acknowledgements, more sullen than the first. Sasha turned down her wireless and pushed the siling to the back of her mind, then brought her attention back to her surroundings. She had just passed into the OBGYN ward, where a familiar dark-haired woman was leaning up against the wall outside one of the urgent care rooms. She had a clipboard in one hand and was rubbing the bridge of her nose with the other.
3: Hey, Morgan.
0: Sasha said, smiling sympathetically as she approached.
3: Long shift.
0: Morgan made a disgusted sound.
5: (sighs) Twenty hours and counting. I will be ecstatic when this residency is over.
0: Sasha wrinkled her nose and looked around at the nondescript walls.
5: This isn't even your beat, is it? I thought you were in clinical pathology. I am. But a woman came in here last week with umbilical cord prolapse and a case of Stafford's fever. "'Half of the residents in this wing were infected while they tried to save the child.' She shrugged. "'I did a rotation through here during my internship, so they asked me to help.' A sigh. "'Not that I'm of much use for something like this.'
0: Sasha poked her head around the doorframe and looked into the room. A pregnant teenager sat propped up on one of the beds near the back, flanked by windows on either side. She seemed to be asleep, but her face did not look peaceful.' A fetal heart monitor was hooked up next to the usual equipment that monitored the girl's own heart rate and blood pressure.
3: Danny said the baby is having visions?
0: Morgan shuffed a quiet laugh.
5: (laughs) That's what the girl says. For all I know, she may be the one who's mad. You'd know more about it than I would, honestly. I've been here nearly five years and I still don't think I understand your people.
0: She shook her head.
5: I gave her a mild sedative, not enough to do her any good but with any luck it will help calm the child.
0: Sasha nodded, reaching up to finger her yew tree crucifix. She whispered a prayer for the girl and her baby before turning back to Morgan.
3: You look terrible.
0: Sasha put a gentle hand on the taller woman's arm.
3: Why don't you go get some rest? I'll stay with her and call you if anything changes.
0: Morgan gave her a grateful smile and handed over the clipboard.
5: Thanks, Sasha. Sasha. I also have two postpartums in room 12, but they shouldn't give you any trouble. It's not that there's really that much to do, they just don't have the people to cover the shifts right now.
3: Perfect time for you to grab some shut-eye, then.
0: Sasha returned the smile.
3: Go find a desk to hide under for a couple
5: hours. I can handle this. I owe you one.
0: Morgan said, looking back over her shoulder as she left.
5: I'll be in Timson's office if you need me.
0: Sasha waved in acknowledgement, then looked down at her clipboard. Morgan's thin, precise printing listed each of the patients under her care, their room assignments and reason for being there, any medications and the times when they had been administered, and anything else that Morgan had thought relevant to their treatment. After looking in on the two postpartum women and verifying that they were asleep, Sasha went back to room 14 and sat down next to Jenny Bloggs. The girls seemed to be reasonably healthy, a little overweight, but that was hardly unusual with pregnancy. The fresh bruises around her neck, though, were proof enough for her need for asylum. Sasha couldn't tell what had been used to choke the girl. It didn't look like the man had used his bare hands, but forensic analysis wasn't her specialty. Whatever the weapon had been, Sasha suspected that the girl was damned lucky to be alive. A fresh wave of empathy stabbed at her, and Sasha thought of Abby Preston huddled in a safe house somewhere while Miriam used her as bait to lure in Victor. It was a risky gamble, one that Sasha hoped would pay off. Granted, having Miriam, Fiona, Brian, and Daniel to protect her was probably better than having the entire staff of Eastside Security Force. But Sasha suspected that Victor Hincavos was a hell of a lot more dangerous than whoever Jenny was running from. She bowed her head and closed her eyes.
3: Keep them safe, Father,
0: she murmured, touching her crucifix again.
3: Let your angels set a guard around them bring them safely home.
0: She fell silent then, not sure what else to say. After a moment, another voice spoke from the bed beside her.
4: Does he ever answer you?
0: Sasha looked up into a pair of serious brown eyes. The girl's eyelids were heavy, but she regarded Sasha with a look of thoughtful curiosity.
3: Sometimes,
0: Sasha said in answer to her question.
3: Not always the way you expect, though. Eli's voice is quiet. Sometimes you don't know it was him until you look back on it later.
0: The girl seemed to consider that.
3: So how do you know it's really him? Maybe things
4: just happen, and you tell yourself stories later to make sense of it.
0: Her eyes grew distant, troubled.
4: You can make yourself believe all sorts of things if you want
3: them bad enough.
0: Sasha gave her a sad smile.
3: Like believing that the man you loved is a good person, when you really should have known better?
0: Jenny focused on her again, the pain etched deeply on her face. Yes. Sasha took her hand and squeezed it. The girl had her side shields up, but Sasha offered her what comfort and reassurance she could. It was obvious that Jenny had been deeply hurt and betrayed, maybe more than once. Sasha felt a quiet certainty take root inside her.
3: This is why I'm here tonight. People fail us, Jenny. Eli doesn't. I'm not going to say what happened to you was Eli's will, but I do believe he meant for you to come here. He doesn't always spare us from the evil that people do to us, but he can redeem the pain if we'll let him. He can use it to do something good, to make us better people.
0: The girl's face screwed up. She seemed to be holding back tears.
3: How can you know that? Because it's what he does.
0: Sasha took off her crucifix and held it up for Jenny to see.
3: My lord Yahshua died on a tree like this one. The Swielman soldiers hung him there like a criminal until he gave up his spirit. He was buried in a tomb owned by a politician, one who might have spoken out and saved him if he hadn't been too afraid to do it.
0: She slipped the silver chain around her neck again.
3: The story should have ended there, but three days later, Eli raised Yahshua to life again. No other god has ever done anything like it.
0: She smiled, hoping that the girl could understand the importance of what she was saying.
3: But that's how Eli works, Jenny. He takes the hopeless causes and he brings life and victory where before there was only death.
0: Tears welled up in the girl's eyes.
3: But why didn't he fix it
4: before it was hopeless?
0: She pointed at the yew tree.
4: Why didn't he just rescue Yeshua instead of making him go through all that pain?
0: Looking in the girl's eyes, Sasha knew that it wasn't the Lord's pain that she was asking about. There were a dozen answers she could have given, but she chose the one that seemed the most relevant to what Jenny was really asking.
3: I think because he knew going through that pain would help Yahshua help others.
0: Her voice was steady and thoughtful.
3: When the Lord suffered, it connected him to all of us who have ever suffered in this life. It gave him the experience to identify with us to know what we're going through."
0: She squeezed the girl's hand again.
3: "...pain is a powerful teacher. It can make us more compassionate to the people around us if we let it. So we don't wall ourselves off from our emotions for fear of dealing with it."
0: Sasha thought of Fiona, feeling a rush of pride at how her lover had finally overcome the barriers inside her. She had a long way to go yet, but Fiona was finally on the road to healing and Sasha knew that she would be more charitable now to those who had suffered the sort of pain she had suffered. Her eagerness to help Abby had been proof enough of that. Yes, Fiona wanted revenge on Victor for killing her mother, but she was driven at least as much by her need to protect another girl from falling prey to Victor's psychotic rage. The girl nodded slowly, understanding dawning on her face.
4: You have to know the disease before you can cure it.
3: That's it.
0: Sasha agreed quietly.
3: And the only way to understand pain is to live it.
0: Jenny's eyes drifted to the far end of the room, then back to Sasha.
4: Do you think that's what Eli's doing with me? That he's making somebody who can help other people?
0: Sasha smiled.
3: That's partly up to you, but if that's what you want, yes, I think he'll do it.
0: The girl closed her eyes and leaned back again the tension slipping from her shoulders.
3: Then maybe it will all
4: be worth it.
0: A few minutes later, Jenny drifted off to sleep, looking much more peaceful than she had before. Sasha took the silver yew tree between her fingers once more, bowed her head, and prayed. The commuter tunnel was dimly lit, and smelled of urine and industrial solvents. Rats scurried out of sight as the four sighs approached, vanishing through cracks in the curving brick walls. The fluorescent lights buzzed, adding a steady undercurrent to contrast with the sound of their footsteps. Bringing up the rear, Brian cast frequent glances over his shoulder. The echoes in the tunnel played tricks on him. Several times he thought he heard someone else coming up behind them but when he looked back, he saw only an empty passage. His telepathic senses were similarly blank, revealing no other sentient minds in their vicinity. It was, he thought, one of the loneliest places he had ever been. A hundred years ago, the commuter tunnels had been major arteries for foot traffic in Metamore City, especially in the winter months, when a heavy snowfall could block the surface streets for days... As the upper levels of the city were constructed, though, the middle class migrated away from ground level, and the tunnels fell into less frequent use. Nowadays, they mostly served to move factory workers between their job sites and the subway stations. During off hours, they served as a transit system for the things that hunted at street level, the beasts and hunters, who lacked even the vampire's thin veneer of civilized restraint. Brian reached down and patted his gun for reassurance. He hoped that Miriam had some solid wards in place at the safe house. This far down, no one was going to hear it if something decided to attack them. For what it was worth, the Elder didn't seem to be worried. She walked ahead of them at a steady, determined pace, not sparing a glance at the holes in the walls or the shifting
2: shadows around them. I don't suppose there's much that she's afraid of. I wonder how often she's had to actually use all that power she has. I wonder how often she's been forced to kill. Fiona cast a look over
0: her shoulder at him, fixing him with unreadable eyes. He doubted that she'd actually heard his thoughts, but she'd obviously picked up on the emotions behind them. With an effort, he pushed the melancholy to the back of his mind, bringing his focus back to the present moment. Whatever his reservations about killing a fellow sigh, he couldn't afford to indulge them. Victor needed to be put down like it or not, they were the ones in the position to do it. There would be time for regrets and self-examination later, if they survived. Fiona slowed her steps for a moment, falling into line beside Daniel. She murmured something to him, and he pulled out his Tomfa sticks, passing one of them to her. She examined it closely as they walked, running her fingers over the polished surface of the wood. Miriam led them through a heavy steel door and up a flight of steps so old that they might have once led into open air. Now, the massive edifice of Connolly Tower surrounded them on all sides, the faded yellow bricks giving way to the soft gray of reinforced concrete. Another steel door waited at the top of the stairs, this one keyed to a security panel. Miriam waved a keycard over the sensor, then entered a passcode on the touchscreen. The door clicked, and she held it open for the rest of them. Brian noticed that she left the door unlocked behind them. The security door opened onto a small lobby with a pair of lift tubes. A sign on the wall listed the names and suite numbers of the businesses that occupied the tower's first level. Beyond the lobby, an interior corridor ran to the left and right. It was three meters wide, with ceilings at least twice that height. Narrow tire tracks could be seen here and there on the concrete floors, probably from forklifts or other small industrial vehicles. This way. The Elder gestured, leading them down the hallway to the right. Daniel cast a dubious look at their surroundings. They had gone maybe 50 meters when he spoke up. Elder Bakhtavar, are you sure that Victor's going to follow us in here? Miriam glanced back at him with a small frown. Why would he not? Just look at this place. Daniel gestured at a security panel on the wall. All the doors are linked to these card readers, and I'm not seeing a lot of exits. Even if he can get an access card, Brian could just override it, and Victor knows that. He shook his head. It's too obvious of a trap. Vic's not going to fall
2: for it. Brian frowned. Daniel's right. This place is defender's ground all the way. Coming after us here would go against everything Victor ever taught us. Miriam smiled thinly and gave them a slow nod, conceding the point.
1: "'Normally you'd be right, of course. But Victor's rage is stronger than his judgment. Make him angry enough and you can blind him to the obvious. He pinned all his hopes on Abby Preston. Now that she has left him, we believe that he will be irrational enough to follow the trail we've laid for him.'
0: Daniel nodded thoughtfully. "'Okay, I can buy that. But he's not a moron.' If this is going to work, we can't give him a chance to stop and think.
1: My thoughts exactly.
0: Miriam stopped at one of the interior doors and swiped her card to open it.
1: Come. We'll lay our trap for him here.
0: The door opened to reveal a vast loading bay, the end point in the assembly line for whatever factory filled this section of the tower. A large conveyor belt entered the room on the far left side, ending in a broad, elevated platform. On the far right was an enormous hangar door, large enough to admit three skimmer trucks or one good-sized cargo tender. Large wooden crates filled most of the remaining space, turning the floor into a maze-like pattern of narrow walkways with only limited visibility. The crates were about two meters on each side and stacked in columns, three to six crates high. Brian had no idea what the crates contained, but it was obviously something heavy, or they would have used cardboard instead of wood. Even a teak as strong as Victor would have a hard time moving these things. Overhead, a gantry crane ran on a long track that zigzagged across the loading bay, supported by a network of steel girders that hung from the ceiling. The heavy loading hook attached to the crane would allow the crates to be lifted from the end of the conveyor belt, placed in stacks, and then loaded onto the cargo vehicles when they arrived. Brian's military training quickly saw the value of the location. As strong as his telekinesis was, even Victor couldn't fly. The boxes would hem him in, block the lines of sight that his power required, and form a set of stable platforms from which they could attack him. Victor's PK shield was damned good at stopping bullets from a single pistol, but a simultaneous attack from four or five different directions should overwhelm his defenses and bring him down. Brian lingered at the entrance as he took stock of the room and its features. Daniel stood beside him, apparently doing the same. Miriam had gone on a few paces ahead of them, but stopped and waited when she realized what they were doing. Fiona stood between them and the elder, with perhaps a meter of space on either side. Brian glanced at her briefly as he scanned the room, and then he stopped and looked again more closely. Fiona was carefully looking at nothing in particular, her eyes on a spot a little to Miriam's right, To a casual observer, she would have seemed perfectly calm, her thoughts and emotions locked behind iron walls of self-control. But Brian had been living with Fee for years, and he saw the tension in her limbs, the careful balance in her footing, the whiteness of her knuckles as she gripped the tonfa in both hands, the subtle flaring of her nostrils as she scented the air. Something had her keyed up, and she was doing her damnedest not to give it away. A knot of tension began to form in Brian's stomach.
2: He turned to Miriam. This is a good spot, but we'd better get into position. Are your people already here? I can't sense anyone but us.
1: They're in one of the offices on the other side. We've lined it with lead shielding and cold iron to block scrying.
0: She nodded toward the narrow walkway in front of them.
1: It's right this way.
0: Brian nodded, and they began moving forward again. And that's where you're keeping the girl?
1: That's right. She's a little shaken, of course, but she's handling
0: it well. Daniel stopped in his tracks. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're talking about Abby, the girl Victor took with him? Of course, Brian said, frowning. Who else would we use to lure him down here? (laughs) But Abby's not here. She's back at the hospital. She just left Victor earlier today and came looking for me. We're giving her asylum. He looked at Miriam, confusion written large across his face. Why would you tell them she's... Before he could finish the sentence, Fiona brought down the tonfa over her upraised knee, splitting it in half with a loud crack. She had twisted the baton just so as she struck it, exploiting some unseen flaw that ran diagonally through the grain of the wood. In the blink of an eye, she had turned the blunt-ended weapon into a pair of jagged spikes of roughly equal length. She tossed one of the pieces to Daniel. Grasping the other piece with an overhand grip, she lunged at Miriam, aiming it straight for the woman's heart but as fast as Fiona was, Miriam was faster. She flickered out of the way, a whisper of motion too fast for the eye to follow. Brian blinked, and the Elder was standing atop one of the nearby crates.
2: You couldn't have kept your mouth shut for thirty more seconds?
0: Miriam's face had changed, her brow wrinkling into an inhuman, predatory expression. Her eyes glowed yellow-green in the dim light of the loading bay, and when she bared her teeth at them, Brian saw a set of long, gleaming fangs. Oh, gods. Not her. Not Miriam. With visible difficulty, Miriam forced her face to return to its usual look.
1: I'm very sorry, children.
0: Her voice was rough with suppressed emotion.
1: But the master says that you must pay for your part in the raid on Viscount Security.
0: Other figures emerged from hiding places throughout the loading bay, their eyes shining and filled with hungry anticipation. Brian looked out at the corridor and saw more vamps converging from both directions, blocking off all avenues of escape.
1: Surrender, and I will accept you as thralls in my house under my protection.
0: Miriam's voice was firm but gentle.
1: It will be degrading, but it will stop the cycle of violence. Your families will be safe.
0: Her eyes glistened with sadness and regret.
1: And I promised to treat you more kindly than I was treated.
0: Brian shot a quick glare at Fiona. You knew? Smelled wrong, Fiona murmured, still looking up at Miriam.
2: Pheromones were off.
0: Why didn't you do something sooner? She glanced at him then, the pain obvious in her eyes. I thought she had the girl. Daniel backed into position beside Brian and Fiona, forming a loose circle with their backs facing each other. Victor's not coming, is he? It was more a statement than a question. Doesn't look like it. Enough of this. Choose, quickly.
1: Will you surrender to me or not?
0: Fiona set her jaw and raised her makeshift stake in a combat stance. We'd rather die. Miriam just nodded sadly. She gestured, and the vampires began to close in. Crap, Daniel said. The prenatal psychiatrist came and went, leaving the mysterious Jenny Bloggs with an amulet imbued with a sleep enchantment. It would allow both Jenny and her baby to rest without risk of overdosing the child. Dr. Carlyle promised to return tomorrow for a more extended appointment, but for now, at least, Jenny was sleeping peacefully. Sasha was just coming back from checking on the other patients in the ward when her phone rang. She checked the caller ID before flipping it open.
3: Hey, Bex, did the kid wake you up again?
0: Any concerns she might have had about Rebecca's sleep cycle were immediately banished by the fear in her lover's voice.
2: Sasha, you've got to get out of there. Something really bad is coming.
0: A chill ran through Sasha, but she pushed it back and made herself shift into mission mode. If something was a big enough threat that it was tripping Rebecca's ESP from halfway across the city, she didn't have any time to waste on panicking.
3: What can you tell me?
2: not a lot. It's one person. A man, I think. But really mad and really dangerous. He's coming for that girl you're protecting.
0: Sasha looked over at the sleeping Jenny, frowning.
3: How close is he? Close,
0: Rebecca said, sounding frustrated at her power's lack of precision.
2: Like, I don't know, a few hundred meters, maybe? Oh, God, Sasha, he knows where you are. Get everyone out of there.
3: Copy that.
0: Sasha rang off. She ran over to Jenny and pulled off the sleep amulet. While she waited for the girl to wake up, she went and found Morgan, who was now using Timson's office to catch up on some paperwork.
3: We've got to clear this ward. I just got a warning from our esper that Jenny's boyfriend is on the way.
0: Morgan raised an eyebrow.
5: Can't security
3: deal with that? Based on what Bex told me, apparently not. Do you have room for these women in the pathology ward? Yes.
0: Morgan said cautiously.
5: But That's against regs
3: Fuck the regs
0: Sasha snapped Then more gently
3: Morgan, please I know you're not a spooky But for Eli's sake Trust me on this Get them out of here While we still can
0: This time the mundane woman Obviously heard the desperation In Sasha's voice She was up and moving With only an instant's hesitation On her way back to Jenny's room Sasha reopened the thought link Tying her to the security team downstairs
3: All agents report in
0: A chorus of telepathic voices came back. Most of them reported that their stations were quiet, nothing out of the ordinary. Two of them didn't respond at all.
3: Anyone heard from Connor or Stevens?
0: A wave of negatives came back.
3: All agents to defensive positions. Far eyes report one alpha coming in hot, range less than half a click. Keep your eyes open and coordinate so he doesn't outflank you.
0: A ripple of confusion came from some of the guards. Far eyes? one of them asked. Alpha? Sasha ground her teeth and made a note to teach military parlance to all members of the Hive.
3: An esper and an aggressor, respectively,
0: she said, her annoyance leaking through into her mental voice.
3: I'm moving the target to the crisis room in SL2. Turn on your headset so I can call you when we get there.
0: Jenny was sitting up in bed and radiating worry when Sasha came back to the room.
3: He's here, isn't he? Looks that way. No contact yet, but we're going to get you out of here just in case. There's a crisis room on the 2nd sublevel where you'll be safe until we catch this guy.
0: Jenny nodded and pushed herself unsteadily to her feet. She paused there for a moment, one hand on the bedside table. Apparently the sleep charm had some lingering effects. Sasha took the girl's arm to steady her and led her toward the lift, wondering how Jenny's assailant would choose to show himself. The answer came less than a minute after they entered the lift. A sound like distant thunder rose up from the depths of the tower. The lights went out, replaced by a dim red emergency lamp mounted on the ceiling. The lift car shuddered, then jerked to a halt. Ah! Jenny and Sasha tumbled to the floor, both of them instinctively shielding the girl's belly against the fall. Sasha landed hard on her back, with Jenny partly on top of her. The wind came out of her in a rush.
4: Sorry. Are you all right?
0: Sasha paused to take a mental inventory. She would have a few bruises from that one, but that seemed to be the worst of it. She hadn't felt the crack of breaking ribs or the pop of a shoulder coming out of joint.
3: I'm... all right,"
0: She gasped, coughing.
3: You? The baby?
0: Jenny nodded once, her facial expressions mostly unreadable in the dim light.
3: I think she's still asleep. That charm must be good for a little while longer, I guess.
0: They clambered to their feet, bracing against each other in the wall of the car. Sasha brushed herself off and went to the control panel underneath the floor buttons.
3: What's going on? Lost power to the lift. He probably found the circuit breaker and shut it down to try and keep us from leaving.
0: As she spoke, she opened a link back to her security teams and told them to send guards to the other circuit control stations. If their attacker tried to do anything else to mess with the power, they'd be ready for him.
2: Lieutenant, the, the
0: responses that she got back from her team were confusing. Hey,
2: Guys, we just we lost just power. power. This is not nothing. We lost to power.
1: To we better get I've it online. We're out. Anybody got a visual? There you too, son. No yeah, visual this is not yeah, good. How uh, I said. No one's no, firing the fucking
0: stars. You still freaking out
2: down there? I can't hear myself
0: think. Connor big. and Stevens were still silent, and now so were Hudson and Cutler. The others were all chattering at once, all reporting power outages at their assigned posts. Their fear and anxiety clouded the link, making it hard to pick out their messages among the background noise. The wireless network that ran their comm headsets was down as well, so she couldn't even fall back on voice communication. As the seconds ticked by, though, one fact became clear.
3: It's not just the lift,
0: Sasha whispered, horrified.
3: It's the whole hospital. What?
4: How? Aren't hospitals supposed to be protected against things like that?
0: Sasha nodded, thinking hard.
3: The hospital's fed by a main conduit that runs all the way down the reactor under the tower. To cut the power to everything at once, he'd have to shut down that conduit. But that's not something that just anybody could do. You'd need all kinds of security clearances to even learn how. And you'd have to be even higher up before you could access the hospital's schematics.
0: She shook her head, disbelieving.
3: We were in M.I.D. for three years before Victor taught us how to...
0: A surge of tangled emotions spilled out from behind Jenny's shields, and Sasha cut herself off in mid-sentence. No coherent thoughts had crept past Jenny's defenses, but the sense of recognition was unmistakable. And so was the fear. Sasha stared at her, all the pieces falling into place in an instant.
3: Jenny? Who is it, exactly, that's after you?
0: jenny looked away radiating feelings of shame and soul-sick dread sasha reached out her mind and brushed against the girl with a gentle tendril of thought an invitation to share
3: jenny i can't protect you if i don't know what i'm up against
0: the teenager bit her lip obviously thinking hard then before sasha could react she reached out and grabbed sasha's mind with her own opening a channel so broad and strong that it made Sasha's links to the security guards look like the trickle of a garden hose. Thoughts and memories poured into Sasha in a torrent. In less than a second, Jenny Bloggs, or rather, Abby Preston, confessed to Sasha all of the mistakes, lies, and stupid decisions that had brought her to this place. She saw how Victor had turned from savior to monster before Abby's eyes and the assault that had compelled her to return to the Collective. She understood the fear that Abby felt for Darla, her daughter, and her terror at the thought that the elders might kill her baby to keep Victor's genes from being passed on. Most frightening of all, though, was the change in Victor's mind. Abby didn't know what had happened, and Sasha couldn't begin to imagine, but somehow he had fragmented his thoughts so that Abby couldn't read them, which either meant that he was irretrievably insane or that he'd gotten his hands on some kind of technology that the Hive had never seen before. And either way, he was here, coming for Abby. Sasha looked into Abby's eyes, and the fear in them mirrored her own.
3: We've got to get out of here now.
0: We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast, right after these messages.
4: His name is Joss Kyle. He's a criminal, a murderer, a liar, and a cheat. He ruined everything in my life, and I'm going to catch him. Even if it kills me. It's all I have left.
2: Lay your cards on the table, check your weapons, and join the resistance. The final episodes... Predestination and other games of chance. A science fiction thriller by podcast novelist J. Daniel Sawyer. Subscribe today at www.jdsawyer.net. Predestination and other games of chance. It isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.
0: Dark Matter In a freak accident that leads to her untimely death, Luella, a plain Jane from the suburbs, finds herself transformed into one of the walking undead. Michael, the Archangel, offers her a chance to win her life and family back. Luella learns that even in the afterlife, nothing is free. She must pit her meager supernatural abilities against the mounting forces of darkness. ...confronting problematic demons and monsters from the other world and beyond... ...who aggressively continue to tip the scales in the war between good and evil in favor of the Dark One. With the help of Steven, the altruistic vampire, and Devoc, a dead librarian from ancient Alexandria... ...Luella walks the world between the living and the dead. In her quest to regain her life, she learns that even the forces for good have their own agendas... ...and cannot always be trusted... This book is a macabre stew of horror, fantasy, science fiction, and humor. Michelle Rogers' Dark Matter. Subscribe today at www.michelleroger.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-E, roger.com. And we are back. Thanks to Dan and Kitty at Artistic Whispers Productions for giving me a space to record this because my home has been taken over by bad folk singers this evening. (laughs) Oh, this has been an interesting adventure getting this episode done, but glad to have a alternate recording location where such things are possible. In this episode, you heard Paulette Jackson continuing her role as the understudy for Miriam. Unfortunately, Martha, who normally voices Miriam, had to go in for some surgery, and uh, she's going to be out in recovery for a while. So we here at the Metamore City podcast extend her our best wishes for a full recovery. Last I heard, she's doing well, but it's going to be a while before she's back on her feet again. So thanks very much to Paulette for taking over and filling in for the role of Miriam. She will be playing the part probably for the rest of the novel. And Martha, we hope you're hearing this and that you're going to get back home, back up to full strength soon. In this episode, you heard a number of metamorphs standing in as members of the securities team for the hospital. Thanks very much to Tristan Johnson, Mark Smith, Christina Regan. Dan Sawyer and Kitty Nakian for their voices as members of the security team. I uh, think that it did a nice job of rounding out the ambiance for that whole section of the episode to have some actual people that we could hear Sasha talking to. So thank you to all of you guys for volunteering and to all the people who did also offer their services who I didn't get back to because I have had the week from hell at work. (sighs) But it's done now. It's the weekend, and we're all happy now. Thank you very much. Shiny, happy people holding hands. Shiny, happy people holding hands. (laughs) (laughs) This is the danger of recording at Artistic Whispers, folks. You get random commentary from the peanut gallery. If you would like to contribute your feedback to the show, you are welcome to call in to our voicemail line, which is 206-203-0994. That is 206-203-0994. You can also send in your comments in text or audio to feedback at metamorecity.com. You can join our Facebook group, Fans of Metamore City, You can post your comments on the blog at Metamorcity.com or join the online discussion group at thecursed.org. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can find me as Ethereus on Twitter, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, or as C.W. Lester on Skype. I look forward to hearing your feedback. We'll be doing another feedback show probably at the end of the series, probably do an exit interview type feedback show. And to all of the people who are going to give me shit for Daniel's comments about Danny's aggression level being knocked down by her hormones, remember, folks, Daniel is not my mouthpiece. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it for this week, and I will see you guys again in two. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.
5: It's stupid o'clock for everyone. Yay!
0: I'm not telling you to leave. I'm uh, I'm not telling you to stay either.
2: Tonight, the part of Brian Summers will be played by Chris Lester.
0: Sorry. I'm trying to direct.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'll be in my trailer.
0: All right. Get the hot and oiled dancing girls.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'll definitely be in my trailer for a while. (laughs) Team Morris,
0: that joke was for you.
4: You're almost half an hour early. If you'd prefer to book your appointments earlier, I'll be happy to oblige, but if you'll not be getting extra time without paying for it, I'll do it one more time just in case it's complete crap. I keep saying that. my word of the day. I've got to get a better vocabulary. Actually, you can both get out of my bloody flat. I just look at this. I'm sorry. It's been a while with this complete shape, Just let me know.
2: I've had my testosterone injections today. <laughs>
0: so, you know, he feels the, the weight of his responsibility and is wondering how she deals with it.
2: Well, you know what? She's still only one character. I'm two. How do you think I feel about that? I mean, come on. <clears throat> and all the time when, you know, you're running between Brian's cell and our tax, he's got to move faster than you guys, and that is just not cool. Back to work. Read the line, minion. <laughs> okay. Now what?
0: Now say it aloud.
2: It. It's not working. <laughs> <laughs> I've missed doing this to Lester. Oh, so you met a more City audience. My goal in life is to make Lester weep every time we have a recording session. <laughs> okay. No, for reals. <laughs> It doesn't work until there's actual pain, maybe a little blood. <laughs> maybe yeah, we should. <laughs> maybe we should edit that last part out. Especially after the last feedback show. Yes, <laughs> we get enough jokes like that as it is. <clears throat> In purple, I'm stunning. Ha 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 ha!